Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. Our signature theme was composed by Greg Learhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and tonight we're absolutely delighted to have one of the world's most enthusiastic film historians on the show. Eddie Muller is the host, as most of you know, of Turner Classic Movies Noir Alley on Saturday nights. But he's also an author, a novelist, two-time Edgar Award nominee from the Mystery Writers of America, the founder and president of the Film Noir Foundation, which has been instrumental in preserving America's noir heritage. Welcome, Eddie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate your introduction very much. Uh, inserting the word enthusiastic before anything else on the resume is good. Because I, I do think that has been the, dare I say, the key to my success. Well, you and I uh, are very have a lot in common. Uh, we both love movies to death. Uh, I feel like there's a thin red line of guys who are guys and gals who still really love film history. And uh, I think that we have a lot of responsibility because the studios my impression is the studios don't have as much interest in their history that, that they, than they should. Um, gee whiz, uh, do you want to get me in trouble right off the bat? Me talking about <laughs> my, my opinions of the studios and their... Uh... Well, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. I think that uh, I've worked for all of them and I've done commentary tracks on Blu-ray releases. I've done documentaries. And it's always an uphill battle to get in, people interested in history. And I think that what's, what a true joy I have watching your show is that you really genuinely love this stuff. And I think that the studio should be thrilled that people like you pre preserve it. Uh, I appreciate your saying that. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. Um, our responsibility these days is to make these films interesting for for subsequent generations. I, I'm not going to say this generation because it goes beyond that. And I, I've been pretty, pretty successful at it, I have to say. Um, and I do believe that that is one of the reasons that um, Turner Classic Movies chose me to be a host on the network is that they saw the audiences that I was attracting to my Noir City film festivals. And it was, it's pretty much the audience that they desire in order to keep the network going. You, you have to start skewing younger. You have to attract, um, you know, more than people in their, in their 60s who are, whose attitude is, yeah, they don't make them like they used to. You, you have to uh, appeal to people who love contemporary movies, but make them understand why the older films are just as, as valuable, if not more valuable in many ways. So uh, that that is the challenge. I, I have accepted it. Uh, and it, it it's very gratifying, I have to say. You know, when I started out doing this, um, my goal really was was extraordinarily selfish. It was to sell the books that I had written. That's why I programmed film festivals and things. But then as I got into it and I started asking uh, the studios for certain films that I wanted to show, and, and I was told, we don't have that. Uh, we, we don't actually have a print of that movie anymore. 
then I then alarm bells went off and I started thinking like what what's up with this you know I mean we can't lose this stuff and that's why I created a foundation to restore the films but as time has gone on I realize it's that's that's not the only thing right because then I started doing my shows in uh, vintage movie theaters that were in jeopardy of of ceasing to be movie houses and we're going to be converted into something else. So I wanted to support those people. And then you realize you're not just saving films and venues. You're, you have to save the audience, uh, right? Because if people don't pay money to come in and see the movies, there's no point in it. And, and that's how I made impression on the studios was I showed them that I could get, it, it wasn't necessarily the money, it was the number of uh, play dates I would get for a film. So I'd, I'd pick a film, let's just out of the air, choose something like uh, a movie like Larceny from 1948 that nobody remembered or had heard of, you know, John Payne and Dan Durier are the stars. But if I could get eight to 10 play dates a year at my festivals out of that title, it showed them that there was still value in that. Because quite honestly, as, as you well know, uh, and this is a business where money is is the language that everybody speaks. When you, you know, you start talking about a great actor or a great director or something and they, their eyes can glaze over. If you tell them, I'll make you this much money for this many dates, they pay attention. Well, it's interesting. Um, the whole theater going experience is going through some rocky times now. I mean, of course, COVID changed the stakes enormously. Um, people over 40 or maybe over 45 aren't going back to the movies yet in any numbers. The studios and as economically makes sense, they're really playing to younger audiences because they know young people still like to get out of the house and thus they bought into the whole Marvel Universe and all the uh, Star Wars things. I worry a little bit about theaters. I always see, I laugh sometimes and I think that the key to keeping theaters open has to do with sex because, and maybe it's changed a little bit, but when I was a teenager and you wanted to take your, your significant other to the movies, that was a way of getting away from your parents' couch. So you could go make out in the drive-in or you made out in the last row of the, this theater. I'm not sure if that still applies or not. <laughs> uh, I understand. <laughs> I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, and, and I don't know. I mean, that's very interesting because I think that uh, the technology of our era has isolated people uh, to, to the degree where you'll have five people in a household and all five of them will be in different rooms doing different things with different devices and and they don't feel the necessity to get out of the house like they used to because they put on headphones or they plug into something and they're just isolated within their normal living space uh which i i don't think is a good thing you know i'm a, i'm very much a social animal and uh you know i i recently did uh you know, my first live show in a while where we had a lot of people back in the theater and there was a, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to report there was a great mix of ages. Uh, all of my shows are pretty 
much gender split right down the middle and um and accounting for people who don't subscribe to normal binary things but uh we get those too you know and it it's so i'm not in any way ready to give up i just think that there's a lack of imagination on a on the part of the studios certainly um but also on programmers and venues that unfortunately uh feel they have to cater to this thing and they aren't like making a stand and saying this is what we're going to do and if we do it well we're going to attract an audience that you wouldn't expect to come to a movie theater which is 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 certainly what i've been able to do i mean i've been doing live movie shows for almost 25 years now and i have seen the landscape change completely mm -hmm. right because uh, i predate digital <laughs> entirely and i i lived through the the segue into digital projection and all that when it was really really bad and and now our shows are a mix of 35 millimeter films and digital films and you know i've i've kind of surfed through that really rough transitional period where the film purists wouldn't watch anything that was digital and then people i was trying to convince people of the value of 35 millimeter and younger people just it didn't even register on them they couldn't see what the difference actually was to to where now it's not that big a factor because because the digital has improved to the point where some of these old movies look better uh, in a 4K digital scan than they did when I was showing a beat up 35 millimeter print, you know, so you have to kind of, you know, that word I just used surf what's going on, you, you sort of have to do that, you know, the idea is to just stay up on the board. <laughs> did, did you did you grow up in a movie going house? No, not at all. My my mother was a movie fan, uh, but she was more a fan of like specific actresses. She was a big Betty Davis fan. And um, my dad didn't do the movies at all. My dad was a sports writer and, and that was what he was into. And he was like either working at the newspaper or going to sporting events virtually every night of the week. Um, so... I mean, he'd watch a movie on occasion, and I did, towards the end of his life, we would watch movies together, uh, and that was that was fun. But no, it was not a movie-going household. So where did you discover your movie going at first? What were you doing? Uh, well, interestingly, and this will bring us back to your show, um, it was James Bond movies. Honestly, uh, James Bond movies were like the first movies that I really latched onto as a young kid. And, and it's interesting to realize that, um, you know, I don't know that I understood them because I was seeing, let's, let me figure this out. I was probably, when Dr. No came out when? In 1962? Uh, in England, but in 63 in the U.S. 63 in the U.S. So I was five years old when Dr. No came out. I don't think I saw Dr. No on its initial release, but I did see From Russia with Love, 
on its initial release. So I was a child. I was a child. And I would go to the Empire Theater in San Francisco. And that was my local theater. And they always had the first run James Bond films. And those were, uh, you know, very influential uh, in, in my development, right? I mean, and I, I never realized until recently how significant the British were in my childhood development between James Bond on the big screen and the Avengers oh, on the small screen, because like I've learned, like many other young men, Diana Rigg informed <laughs> my concept <laughs> of dare I say the ideal woman, right? Would be like Emma Peel. Uh, and which is, I think, a tremendously great thing. Yeah. You know? And then of course and then of course they they converge in 69. Uh, Sean Connery's replaced by George Lazenby, and Diana Rigg comes on board, and you get the whole the whole shebang. And and are arguably the best James Bond movie ever. As a movie, it, you know, I'm no comment on Lazenby. Don't you know? I, I'm always going to be a Sean Connery guy because that's you know, that's how I grew up, right? He was the image that of James Bond that took the world by storm. Uh, but Honor Majesty's Secret Service had a huge impact on me when I was a kid. Certainly, the most carefully produced Bond movie, and Peter Hunt, who directed that film had edited the first five movies and Broccoli and Saltzman gave this film to him as his reward for just changing the stakes with all of his wonderful editing. <laughs> there's there's some great stories. I mean, uh, George Lazenby for the listeners that, you know, was virtually unknown at that time. He bamboozled him way, his way into the office by claiming he had done a number of films in Eastern Europe. Now this is pre long before the internet. Nobody could check that out. And his, he looked so good and his movement was so impressive to the producers that they practically fell over themselves to hire him to play Bond. Then he had to tell Peter Hunt that he had no acting experience. And it, it was literally true. The only thing he'd ever done on stage was he was in a Cadbury chocolate commercial carrying a giant chocolate bar without saying any dialogue. So Peter Hunt almost had a heart attack and had to come up with a plan to get a performance out of George. And I will say this, I know there's a lot of people who felt that he was just very wooden and no Connery, but for a guy who had zero acting experience, he was very comfortable on screen. And I believed in a hot second that he was James Bond. Now he didn't make me forget Sean, but I will say this, um, you know, the, the whole story is that his agent at the time told him in the mid-production that Bond was done and to get out of that contract. So George walked away from the series, receiving probably the worst advice in the history of show business. But this is my theory about Lazenby. If Lazenby had stuck with the films, I think they would have been good movies. But Roger Moore catapulted the series to a new generation, and by the early 70s, the Bond movies were not kind of going darker. They had to go lighter to attract a new audience. So people underestimate the value of what Roger Moore brought to the series because he, he gave a whole new generation the excitement. And so that was that. But it's interesting that Bond was one of your first loves. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I, ha I had the James Bond game. 
you know, the, the, the one that was just all plastic where you're like on Dr. No's Island. And then uh, there's a Fort Knox with the, you know, or Goldfinger and the whole thing and, and uh, Largo's uh, his boat in the bay and all this stuff. It, w- it was fantastic. I, I was a huge Bond fanatic when I was a kid. And, and one of the uh, things that got me interested in film is I was also a comic book kid. You know, I read a lot of comic books. And all of this teaches you sequential storytelling. That's essentially what you learn from all of this stuff, right? Uh, and, and that was my interest. So I would you know, t- watch the movies and then I would redraw the movies as comic books and, and make booklets where, you know, Bond is doing this, you know, and it, it's absurd. I mean, I couldn't draw at all. I mean, l- later on, I could actually draw. And I and for a while, I entertained the idea that I was going to become a comic book artist. But um, all that Bond stuff was massively influential. And, and by the way, um, you know, we had Lazenby at the TCM Classic Film Festival a few years ago, and you can see how that guy could talk himself into the role because he does not lack for confidence. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's just put it that way. Uh, it, you know, you ask him who is the greatest James Bond of all time, and he is not going to hesitate to name himself. <laughs> <laughs> so where where would you say was the catalyst that turned you into a lover of noir? Um, you know, that, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I know some of the first noirs that I saw on television. I was not a particularly good student in school. Uh, I'm one of these guys that like math and science, I had no interest. I couldn't relate whatsoever. English, like off the charts, you know, that's all I wanted to do was read and do all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, you know, history, I was also good at. But um, I'd watch these films when I would cut school. Then I would stay home to watch afternoon movies on television and stuff. And that's where I first started seeing the noir films. And it just, it's like a drug, in a sense, because, you know, some people will relate to the comedies or the musicals or the westerns. For me, it was just that visual style, the, um, the darkness, the camera angles, uh, honestly, the the wardrobes, the women, clearly the women were a huge uh, attraction to me. Uh, and it felt like a world that was right next to the world that I lived in. You know, as opposed to Westerns or, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, people that I know don't suddenly spontaneously burst into song. So I can't totally relate to that, you know, uh, but noir felt like it was adjacent. And so that helped me understand how you create art, how you take the real world and modify it to create something more stylish and, and sexier and more sinister and more stylish than what we actually live through but we can still recognize it as as our world eddie um given that hollywood 
during the World War II period was cranking out World War II movies by the ton. And when the war ended, there was a period when people were done with the war and they actually, there was like a three year period where they just stopped making World War II movies cold turkey. Do you think Hollywood's um, introduction to all the detective and crime and mystery movies was the fact they needed new villains for their, was there something there on that level you think? Um, yes, I do. I do think so. But I actually think it it predated the war. I think what I think what happened was the whole idea of noir it was really born after the crash, uh, you know, and in the in the depression, where a number of artists, particularly writers, felt like the American promise had had soured. It's like, you know, th this doesn't work. This isn't working for everybody. Suddenly you're fine one day and you're busted the next day through no fault of your own. And I think that a lot of noir fiction grew out of that era and the depression, but they couldn't get it up on the movie screens uh, because the studios and the the you know, let's face it, Wall Street, who ran Hollywood, uh, would say, no, 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 our job is to boost morale and cheer people up during the Depression. So while there are great Depression-era films that are intense dramas and everything, you know, Hollywood history mostly is, is remembered for boosting morale. And then all of a sudden, there's only a few years not coincidentally, 1939, which a lot of people consider to be Hollywood's greatest year ever, you know, because of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but but then immediately after that, we're in World War II and the same cycle repeats itself. So it's like we we need to bolster the public, boost morale, make all these, you know, jingoistic World War II movies. And I think a lot of what you saw develop in noir films was a lot of holdover from the 1930s, especially in terms of the writing of the films. And then by that time, so many um, European emigres had come to Hollywood with the rise of the Nazis, they had escaped and came with their particular, um, you know, dark style, let's just let's just call it that. Um, that they were used to in, in Germany and France, but not so much in Hollywood. And so when, when those filmmakers uh, latched onto the stories by these uh, disenfranchised American writers who said, you know, it's not going to actually be happily ever after. That's not actually the way it works. Uh, it was kind of a match made in, in artistic heaven, in a sense, you know. And, and I think that's what created film noir. I was, uh, I, I'm doing a lot of catch up. I, I, I've watched a lot of World War II movies. I've watched a lot of science fiction and fantasy films, certainly the Bonds. So I've had to catch up to you in a lot of, you know, a lot of the films because I'm not as knowledgeable. And um, uh, I, last week I watched a couple of Humphrey Bogart movies from 42 that I had not seen. One was called The Kingpin. Mm -hmm. The other one was All Through the Night, uh, yeah. kind of a, a noir with a touch of spy and a little touch of World War II there. 
And Bogey, I know they were, they were, he was changing. I think that they didn't know what they had with Humphrey Bogart. He kind of found himself. And he seems to be kind of like the guy who led the charge at that period. Would you say that's accurate? 100%. I think that's accurate. And I also agree with what you said, that Warner Brothers did not know what they had with Humphrey Bogart. I mean, famously, Jack Warner did not want to ever give him a raise because he had established himself as the second tier leading man. He was behind Cagney. He was behind Edward G. Robinson. Uh, so it was like, this guy can't possibly be, you know, this thing that he suddenly emerged as, thanks largely to John Houston, you know, and they, they were friends. And when they made them, you know, Houston had written the screenplay for High Sierra and said, you know, Bogart will be great in this part. And, but he was the bad guy, right? He, he, I mean, he was a romantic outlaw in that film. But then when the Maltese Falcon came around, they said, we're going to make him the lead. Because, you know, it's important to remember that Ida Lupino was the top billed performer in High Sierra, not Humphrey Bogart. She was the bigger star at that point. And, and that was like a test drive for Bogart. And then with the Maltese Falcon, he completely, and that's why to this day, I always argue with people who say, but the Maltese Falcon doesn't really feel like film noir. It doesn't really look like film noir. It's more detective story because the protagonist isn't really committing a crime. All true. But Bogart established the attitude for the male protagonist in film noir where you operate by your own code of ethics. He is not a law, he is not an enforcer of the law in any way. He understands that there are multiple levels to the law and multiple levels to, to justice being done. And he's operating on his own. So that kind of loner mentality uh, that Bogart was able to embody so well and the, the very romanticized cynicism that he conveyed in those characters uh, like, I love you, sister, but, you know, I'm not going to take the fall for you. You know, you're, you're going over. I mean, that that's like noir 101, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's priceless, you know? He's not above sleeping with the villain, <laughs> but he's, he's not going to go all the way. You know, it's like, nope, 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 nope. Now you, now I'm sending you over. There's, there's that famous, uh, I, I guess it's a photograph. It was a, uh, of a, a woman partially undressed with a dead cop on the floor. You've seen this before. This of, is the thing about the, the production code, like the do's and don'ts of the production code. Yeah, exactly. Everything you can't do in movies. And I'm sure that the producers of those movies had to constantly fight the stupid code. And it's, it's crazy. Now, uh, I've got you in the chair. I got to ask you about two movies because I told you I wanted to talk because these are two of my favorite movies. And I watched The Killers again recently because it's currently on TCM On Demand. And I, was, I, I did a little bit of the research online. And I was surprised to hear that Burt Lancaster's role was originally, uh, they really originally wanted Sonny Tufts and Wayne Morris. And I... I I, I said to myself, who? <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it, it's interesting because uh, Burt Lancaster, like, I don't know that people realize that he hit Hollywood. Well, I have a I have an introduction coming up on TCM I, in either in January and February of a Lancaster film from that era called Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, oh, which wow. is which is one of the freakiest titles ever from that era. Uh, but I describe him as, you know, the the beefcake bomb that hit Hollywood in 1946. And, and that's what he was. I mean, people don't understand that when he arrived in Hollywood, it, it was a massive thing. And Hal Wallace and Mark Hellinger were the two producers who sort of fought over him. Like, who's going to be the first one to make a movie with this guy? And they could not do enough with him. And that Kiss the Blood Off My Hands, which was only, I think, the fourth movie that Lancaster made, he produced it. I mean, that guy was so savvy that he arrived, and within two years of coming to Hollywood, he had formed his own production company and was producing his own movies, uh, which he did for many, many years. I think overall, I think he produced like something like 26 films or something. Oh yeah. Hector. Um, yeah. It was, it, it started out as just Harold Hecht and Burt Lancaster and, and uh, Norma productions, which was named for Lancaster's wife. But, um, but then yeah, uh, James Hill got in the act as well. Uh, and, you know, they did sweet smell of success together, which is one of the great films ever. Uh, anyway, but yeah, the killers was a was a big deal, and it was it's known as uh, you know Lancaster's debut film. He actually made Desert Fury for Hal Wallace. He actually shot that film first. Oh, that was the first film that he made where he appeared before Hollywood cameras, as we say. Uh, but Hellinger and his team were a little uh, more nimble. And they were able to finish the killers and get it done and get it out into movie theaters. And of course, um, it didn't hurt Lancaster at all that Ava Gardner, who I think was 19 or 20 at the time she made that film, was the co-star because, you know, the two of them on camera together, it's it's absurd. It's a, people should not be that good looking. Well, it's funny because I didn't realize that Ava had been around for a while. They just didn't yeah. know what to do with her at MGM. And it's, it's amazing how how misguided the studios could be in realizing what they had. And both of them, you're right, are are so extraordinary. Uh, with with a, with also a, a huge nod to Edmund O'Brien, oh. who is just terrific as well. Yeah, everybody in that cast is great. And it's interesting because not only. Uh, did they not know what to do with Ava Gardner? But I was uh, very close friends with Audrey Totter, the actress Audrey Totter, who was in a lot of these noir films. And Audrey told me that she was up for the role of Kitty Collins in The Killers. And and Hellinger and Siadmak were going to cast her, but she was also... Uh, Robert Montgomery wanted her to play in The Lady in the Lake. Oh. And 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 Audrey said that because Robert Montgomery was the veteran 
of of all of these people, she felt safer going with him rather than um, you know Siad Mac and the and like oh my co star is a guy who's never made a movie before, right? <laughs> Uh, I said, and I, and I joked when I remember when Audrey told me this. I said, but Audrey, you 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 saw Burt Lancaster, right? You you saw him before you turned it down. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. You with with a lot of actors, you see the progression. They start out as the young guys, and they gradually work their way into becoming actors. Either they start out a pretty face. I mean, look at Brad Pitt's career. Brad Pitt was the pretty guy. He was the guy, you know, there wasn't any substance there. He was just the pretty guy. And look what he's become. I mean, Burt Lancaster came out kind of fully formed. I mean, he was, he did. Ready, he was ready to rock and roll. His The follow-up movie that Hellinger did with him, which I, I've probably seen a hundred times, Brute Force, uh, is, is such a powerful movie on so many levels. I got to work when I was at Showtime. I got to work with Hume Cronin. And it's so, it's, you know, Hume Cronin, one of the nicest men on the planet. Yes. Plays the most sadistic warden you've ever seen. And I, I'm a big fan of that movie as well. I was actually surprised that Hellinger died so early. I think he died right after the release of Brute Force. Yes, he was only 44 years old. Yeah. He was preparing um, Crisscross. And uh, and he, yeah, it, I, there's no question in my mind that had he lived, he uh, you know, made more great noir films than any other sure. producer, because sure. that was that was sort of his bent, you know, because uh, he was a Broadway columnist and he, you know, he loved that whole world. You know, he did Naked City and Brute Force and The Killers and Crisscross. I mean, it's a it's a great resume given that he died at 44 years of age. Uh, I, I also had a funny Hume Cronin story when. I was, um, I think it was Valentine's Day in New York, and I was having dinner with my wife at a little Greek restaurant on the Upper East Side, and I looked across the restaurant, and Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy were having a Valentine's dinner in this restaurant, <laughs> and I said, oh my God, this is so, I have to go over and say something to them. You know, I don't want to interrupt their intimate Valentine's dinner, and it was so sweet. And of course, uh, he, at that point, he felt that everyone in the world was knew him from uh, Cocoon, right? right? Because he was in that. And I went up and I, I, I extended my hand and I said, Captain Muncie. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you, he lit up like a freaking Christmas tree. He said, you know that film, you know? And I said, oh, man. You are the most villainous, nastiest prison, oh, the bull. You are King Bull in that movie. You're awful. And he said, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing, the thing that I, I know that you appreciate and we all appreciate is not only the leads in all these wonderful movies, but the wonderful range of character actors that populated them. You know, I, listen, I love movies. I go, I go whenever I see something I enjoy. But today's, today's movies don't have the faces that we had back in the 40s and 50s. The, you know, uh, it seems that um, when, when Hollywood started to embrace the everyman, like a Dustin Hoffman and just regular guys, 
they got away from the character types. And I just, I find that, you know, you know, we have character actors today. I mean, Steve Buscemi is a perfect example. J James Gandolfini when he was alive. Uh, but the range of characters, and of course, in Brute Force, you've got uh, Whit Bissell, you've got yeah, Howard, uh, Howard sure. Duff, uh, you got John Hoyt, and uh, Charles Jack Jack uh, Jack Overman and Charles Bickford Charles and Bickford. Uh, Jeff Corey, uh, Art Smith, who plays like the Dipso, you know, the the. Uh, assistant to the the doctor in the in the prison, you know. Right, right. And but, Roman, but, and Roman Bonin, Bonin, who played the uh, the warden, uh, who yes. I just seen in uh, in the best years of our lives. He played Dana Andrews' father. Uh, absolutely. But but you know, uh, Stephen, the 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 reason for that is actually kind of simple. It's just because in the studio system, they had a stable of every studio had a stable of actors that they would rely on to play these character bits, you know, and, and you could build an entire career out of playing these bit parts. And, and now, you know, it's just, it's, everything is up for grabs. So you just don't see people who aren't stars appearing as often. Right. right? Um, but we may be getting back to that because I'm starting to see with long form storytelling, uh, you know, on the on all of these services that do that, uh, and ensemble pieces are becoming more and more common, and not everybody is is the lead, and it's actually it's. I was waiting for the day when people would realize you don't want eight not everything has to be friends you know where they where they all are incredibly attractive and they're all the same age and it's like okay that was fun but come on get real you know so you watch something like white lotus right if you've been watching that mike yeah. white's thing it's it's like yeah there's a couple of really like stunningly good looking people in the show and then there's actors, you know, you like in the new season, you get F. Murray Abraham and you get Michael Imperioli and Jessica Coolidge, you know, or the, it's Jennifer Coolidge, Jennifer Coolidge, I think. Jennifer Coolidge, yes, uh, absolutely. She's a, she's a hoot and a holler and I'm enjoying the second season. I'm also enjoying for the Star Wars fans out here and I, Star Wars went through, through some real bumpy ground with their features, but the, the new series uh, uh, Andor is a revelation. I, I am so into Andor and the, the long form has given us character actors. Now getting back to Noir, the other film that I just really want to talk a little bit about because it's become a favorite of mine, almost a perennial, is The Asphalt Jungle. Where does The Asphalt Jungle fall in your, your favorite uh, levels? It's unquestionably top five. Uh, I love that film with all my heart I love <laughs> uh, it it really created uh, heist films before the asphalt jungle were a totally different thing. They were kind of Robin Hood stories you know uh, Arsene Lupin and uh, you know there was there was a gentleman bandit who stole from rich people. And it was all, who, who really cares? You know, it's all kind of a fantasy thing. But the Asphalt Jungle was like the first 
dare I say, uh, neo-realist crime movie, because in addition to checking off a lot of boxes as a film noir, it's also kind of a neo-realist film in that it it's depicting the lives of criminals as just, this is how they survive. This, this is just how these people get by, you know? And, and it depicted them, if they remade the Asphalt Jungle today, they would do it as an eight part series, <laughs> you know? Because there are so many characters that every character could have their own episode. You know, like um, Doc Schneider, the character played by Sam Jaffe, is so fantastic as the mastermind of the whole thing. And then Alonzo Emmerich, the Louis Calhoun character who, you know, is the, the faux sophisticate who has to put up the money to stake these guys to the crime. He's an episode. Uh, Dix Handley, you know, the Sterling Hayden character, he's an incredible, you know, the, the, the hooligan who just wants to get this city dirt off my hands, you know, uh, the, the, the whole thing is just, it's perfection that, that is close to being a perfect movie. It's certainly a perfectly cast movie. Everybody in that movie just inhabits the role perfectly including oh, yeah. including Marilyn who is great uh as you know Uncle Lon's mistress you know his quote-unquote niece don't, don't call <laughs> me uncle yeah 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 and uh um you know it's interesting I was reading into it that the studio wanted nothing to do with Sterling Hayden they didn't think he was a uh, a star and I guess John Huston really fought for Hayden Hayden, of course, I mean, Sterling Hayden is an interesting character. I mean, he was an OSS operative, I believe, during the war. Correct. A, a kind of a man's man type. And I've started to fill in my dance card and watch more of his films. Um, the Kubrick film I saw just recently, I had not seen it before. Um, yes, The Killing. Well, The, the killing, killing and, well, he's also in Dr. Strangelove, so... Right. I mean, he, he made a couple of movies with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I, I actually remember him just from Saturday mornings watching him play Jim Bowie in The Last Command. Play, played a hell of a Jim Bowie. Very physical actor. You know, a guy who who just had a strong physicality to him. And Dix, Dix Hanley's an interesting anti-hero type. You're kind of you're kind of pulling for him because he loves those horses. He just wants to get back to the the family property, which of course probably has been sold and isn't really there anymore. And um, another thing about the Asphalt Jungle, and I'm a big Miklas Roja fan. I just yeah. love his music. It's a it's a very sparse score. I know it's almost like you say, it was more about the planning and execution of the robbery with not a lot of incidental music and certainly no romantic music because there's not really any romance. There's, there's no, it's interesting that two of, We'll pick it up. And we were talking about the sparseness of Roja's score in the asphalt jungle. Um, it's it's it does come in. Interestingly, I always point to the moment where John McIntyre has been instructing the reporters about the fact that they've got six of the seven bandits. And then uh, the, the, he refers to Dix as the hooligan. But we'll get him too. And then you cut to the car driving 
and you you hear Rose's music, which is very very memorable. Dun 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 dun. dun, dun. Yes, yes, and yes. Just just so good. I I I just uh, I just love that movie. I, the thing also I have to say about all those movies that we love is that you you're really back in that period. You really feel like you're there in an era before electronics went crazy and took over everything, you know, dial telephones and phone booths. And <laughs> it's I find that interesting. I'm a big like yourself. I'm a student of history and I just love yes. being back. And that earth. you know, it's interesting about black and white film on its own. Um, you know, um, I wrote another book. I wrote the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. I spent two years working with Rod Serling's widow and compiling an encyclopedia. And of course, the core of that first, um, you know, that first run of the Twilight Zone, its first five seasons was they were all in black and white. Mm -hmm. And I learned from from just studying them is that when you when you make a movie or make a show in black and white, the audience is on unfamiliar territory. They're, they're a little bit off. Another thing I noticed, by the way, in the Twilight Zone is there's virtually no product placement in five seasons. You, you, you don't see a standard station. You don't see a Penny's. You don't see recognizable mm. brands. And I think it was method behind the madness. I think Rod Serling really wanted to take people out of their comfort zones and keep them a little bit off balance. With noir... I think the black and white just serves those movies so well. And I know, of course, there's been color movies that technically could be noir-esque, but they're not really, are they? Um, it, well, that's a... I, I kind of want to answer two questions there. Uh, number one, about the value of black and white cinema, which is the art of direction is directing people's attention, directing their eyes and ears. That's what directors do, right? That that's that's basically it as a storyteller. Is you this is the information you want people to absorb. It's actually black and white is tremendously useful in helping direct attention because there is less distraction from color. Right. I mean, your eye, your mind just wants to absorb everything when you're looking at color. But when you're looking at black and white, it's like you need to see this. You need to see this person and this is what's happening. And it's it's incredibly um, effective for directing people's attention. As far as black and white, uh, yes. I mean, the noir movement was fueled by incredible black and white cinematographers. But because you've already heard me mention this, I tend to think of noir from a writer's standpoint um, because it was a lot of 30s writers who got the movement going. Um, and I love the idea that noir in Hollywood, its most subversive aspect was that the stories were, the antagonists became the protagonists. That's what makes noir so interesting to me, right? So the difference between, say, the Maltese Falcon, where Spade is an anti-hero, and he's not the most ethical character in the world, but he's clearly the hero. 
<clears throat> is very different from double indemnity or the postman always rings twice where the main character is the criminal. It's the person committing the crime, right? And that's true of the Asphalt Jungle and the Killers, two movies that you've cited tonight. That that's, uh, the, it's about the criminals and about criminal behavior. So when you look at noir that way, like the protagonists are quote unquote, the bad guys, it doesn't really matter that much whether they're in black and white or in color, right? I mean, Lever to Heaven is the classic example, the 1945 Fox film with Jean Tierney, where she plays this completely psychotic woman who is like the ultimate femme fatale because, you know, she's not only going to, well, I don't want to, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to give away spoilers if people haven't seen it. <laughs> But she will do anything for love, you know, and uh, it, it's pretty scary. And it's a lush, lush Technicolor movie, but it has this incredibly black heart that I can only describe as noir. Sure, sure. Well, Eddie, I, I could talk to you till the cows come home and I, I really enjoyed- Don't, uh, don't tell me, we're, we're, are we done? Uh, <laughs> I can go a little bit longer. I, if, I, if you're up for it, I, I would... no, I'm good. I felt like we were just warming up. So no, it's... <laughs> no, no, that's great. Cause I'm in no hurry either. Uh, I'm going to ask my producer, Ben, uh, Ben, are you still there? Ben, are you? <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure we recorded part one with no problems. Okay. okay fantastic. Uh, well, that's good news. Um, okay, I do. I do have my wife is cooking dinner, so I do have to go and have dinner at some point. <laughs> well, you know, but but this is this has been great fun. So um, feel free to ask any anything else that you. Uh, well, no, no, I, I think that uh, what I would love to do. Well, I, I'll tell you. Here, here's what I want to do. Can we talk about this? Sure. Be because uh, you're such a James Bond expert, I, I just want to. I'd love to talk a little more about. James Bond and sure. and the the transition uh, that Bond and Ian Fleming represented from like the traditional uh, crime solving detective kind of character to the worldly uh, almost you know Superman super spy here that Bond represented is is so fascinating to me. And the fact that um, in England, that Ian Fleming, uh, what that that Bond was at first considered to be kind of a joke amongst the um, the the you know the the Secret Service guys and the psych ops guys that Fleming knew very well, you know uh, the the cold warriors that that. Fleming knew very well. And they thought that, you know, nothing's going to come of this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but well, there's, but an, there's an interesting story there, because uh, this may be apocryphal, but the book sell the books were not selling well. Ian thought that he was on to a bonanza and he really wasn't. The books were just I mean, he was trying to save, uh, you know, save money for his son, Casper. And it was not the um, bonanza he thought of it. And there's some story that at the end of, at the end of um, From Russia With Love, that when Rosa Klebb in the book hits 
bond in the, you know in the legs with those poisoned uh, daggers in her boot uh, that he dies and that was going to be the end of Bond and there was some talk that Fleming was tired of writing the books but of all people he was very close with Raymond Chandler and apparently Raymond Chandler was the one who convinced Ian not to lose heart about Bond and uh, there's another interesting tie-in between noir and Bond uh, when I interviewed Cubby Broccoli in LA back in the 70s I asked him about the origins of the movie Bond. What was he going for? And uh, basically, Cubby told me that Bond had to be a two-fisted Englishman, a guy who was good with his fists. He was a big fan of Mickey Spillane's books. He liked Sam Spade. He liked the American hard-boiled detective guys. He hadn't seen British actors doing that kind of, uh, or Scottish or whatever, uh, that kind of part. So it was very important for, I think the, quint, the the key for Bond at that time was he had to be good with his fists. And if you look at Sean Connery, um, Dana Broccoli, I, I think it was Dana Broccoli, Cubby's wife had seen Sean in a Disney movie of all things called Darby O'Gill and the Little mm -hmm. People. And there's a fist fight in that movie. And I think Sean gets some good punches in. And if you watch the first few James Bond movies with Sean, he he really is exactly what Broccoli wanted. You know, he wasn't as elegant as perhaps the Fleming creation that not, not so much elegant, but he wasn't as polished. In fact, there was some story that some of the distributors in the U.S. market referred to Sean Connery disparagingly as that that limey truck driver because they knew his background. He'd been a truck driver and he wasn't even a limey. He was obviously a Scot. So um, but. He, uh, it, I mean, Sean Connery, like Burt Lancaster in The Killers, comes out as a fully formed guy. And he'd cut his teeth on some other movies. He'd done a few. But as Bond, my God. And I think that um, he basically created the character. I think that director Terrence Young, who really has to get a lot of credit, I think uh, Terrence was a bit of a dashing figure on his own. He'd been a member of the Guards Armored Division in World War II, so he was a tank commander. He, he had some chops, and I think that he knew that he had to clean up Connery, give him some more polish. You know, when he's at the table in that first scene in Dr. No, where he's playing uh, Chemin de Fer or Baccarat with right. Sylvia, Sylvia Trench, and he's in the cigarette smoke and he's talking of the dialogue. He looks the part so well. And the, the, the dialogue was very, very carefully calculated. I can't say enough about the early Bond movies. I think they really, they really captured it. And I think it was at a time, this is another motivation for Cubby and, and Harry Saltzman, his partner, was that British cinema at that time was very, very subdued, you know, showing the squalor a lot of that neo-realism in British cinema, like the... This yeah, the, all the British kitchen sink movies. Yeah, exactly. all, all that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is now, you know, uh, let's see, 62 is now 17 years after World War II. And they, they felt that it was time to show something exciting for the British audiences and, of course, the world. And so the Bond movies just uh, gave it to them in spades. And I think that, interestingly... After all these years, and we're talking 60 years now, Bond, yeah. I have to give them credit because I think that the Daniel Craig Bonds, particularly the first one, Casino Royale, 
came back to the beginning. I think they introduced a bond. Once again, a two-fisted bond, a no-nonsense bond. We couldn't do the Roger Moores anymore. That lightness was long gone. The world's become that much more dangerous. And I think um, Daniel Craig was a brilliant choice to take Bond into the 21st century. I, I could not agree more. And your assessment of the impact that Connery had is just like what I was saying Bogart's impact was in 1941 when, when the Maltese Falcon was released. It just created a whole new image for a male movie star who that would be so influential uh, to the general public. And, and I completely agree that there's something about Bond that he is, um, the way Connery played Bond and the way Daniel Craig played Bond, there was a deeper meaning in that because they were um, rougher characters who were refined by the Secret Service to be tools of the government. And you understood that completely in those characters. Whereas the Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, Timothy Dalton characters are sort of like cartoon characters of unflappable superheroes who are never going to lose their cool or anything. But you got the sense from Connery and Daniel Craig that that these were they they were slightly in over their head because they I mean, they felt like real people being asked to do extraordinary things. And and I, I find that a very compelling aspect of the Bond character, you know, which is why I, I, I liked the last film. You know, I liked Daniel Craig's exit mm -hmm. from the series because, and I'm glad they had the guts to do that that it was like, well, this is this is where a soldier ends up, you know, and he was a soldier all along. That's that's what his role was, right? I mean, however else you describe James Bond in the end, he's a soldier, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and he had a fitting exit. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great uh, scene in um, Casino Royale where uh, Bond has lost all the money against Le Chief, and he wanders over to the bar and the guy he orders a martini and the guy says shake it shake it or not stir and Bond says do, do I look like I give a damn <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was so telling you know that's not a line Roger Moore would ever use ever um <laughs> yeah but you know but it, it's also it's also really great that um you know Daniel Craig is going to have the same kind of career that Sean Connery had when when he left Bond behind, he had a great career ahead of him, and nice. and and clearly Daniel Craig felt kind of hemmed in. Like I don't want to have to keep doing this. I'm getting a little bit old for it. Right. Uh, but now he has transitioned into you know the Knives Out series oh, and. Sure. I mean, when, uh, when, Daniel, he, when Daniel started, he was 38 and he's 53 now. So, yeah, it was time to hang up the uh, the wall there. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens next. I think uh, we're going to probably get a new bond fairly soon. It's it is interesting that back in 63, 
they would do a Bond movie almost every year. You know, you mm -hmm. had you had From Russia with Love also in 63. You had Goldfinger in 64. You had Thunderball in 65. Now you could work, wait five years for a new Bond movie. It's become a lot bigger, uh, bigger battle. But uh, I, I always find it interesting to see where they go. And uh, it's been fun covering it as kind of the I actually I I went to TCM last year when my encyclopedia came out to see if they wanted to do something, but they didn't have the rights to the Bond movies, so they couldn't do anything, unfortunately. Mm. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's been fun, definitely. Well, listen, you've got to get to dinner, and I, I've enjoyed this enormously. We've been listening to the wonderful Eddie Muller, who is such a great host on TCM and does such great work in in preservation. And Eddie, it's just a pleasure to listen to you. And I, I, I want to have you on the show again in the future, particularly when you're uh, touting one of your newest finds and perhaps one of your preservation campaigns to let people know about it. I, I think you're, you are a, a prince of cinema. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And all you have to do is ask. I, I will do it without question. Well, so that's, that's fabulous. You've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. As you know, it's always Saturday night around here. We've been listening to Eddie Muller. Uh, thanks, everyone, and uh, happy holidays. We'll have a couple more episodes before the end of the year, but keep tuning in to Saturday Night the Movies. Thank you, Eddie. You're very welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much.